Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Who's with me? Let's go. Come on. Gotta let me know, should I stay or should I go? Higher from here, or do we test new lows? Or do we grind along, caught up in the throes of indecision? No plan, no mission, no mercy, no malice. Go ask Alice, sitting in her crystal palace, sitting Barolo from a chalice with their homie Jerome. Powell's got the towel, will he throw it in the ring? ching ling ling stock market sing. Or is that wishful thinking, got a sinking feeling that we'll be dealing with higher rates for a while? Bite our lips, but smile, we got a plan for this. No fear, no doubt, no cowardice, just you, just me, just the invested. Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And how about a nice little rally to end the week and freshen things up around here? Yeah. Stocks started off last week under pressure, but cruised into some gains in the final two days as some decent economic data and a cooling off of treasury yields brought the sun to the equity markets. The Services Managers Index released Friday showed better than expected demand for services in February, new orders rising to their highest levels in more than a year, and strong hiring in that sector as well. No recession there. The three major stock market indexes all rose for the week, with the Dow Jones Industrials adding 1.7%. That snapped a four-week losing streak. The S&P 500 gained 1.9%, and the NASDAQ popped 2.6%. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury settled back below 4%, and the two-year yield fell to 4.86%. But even with the end of week rally, stocks are kind of stuck in a range right now after starting off the year red hot. In fact, the S&P 500 is right at its 200-day moving average. That wasn't the case at the end of January when a large percentage of stocks were trading higher than their 200-day average. But it's not out of the ordinary to see a little pullback after a strong start to a year. In fact, it's par for the course. And according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, the follow-through after a strong January is pretty darn strong. The average return after after the S&P 500 gains 5% or more in January for the full year is 22.9%. That's the average. Does it mean it's going to happen this year? No idea. But I like those averages. And seasonally speaking, the first two weeks of March are usually a time of bottoming out for the S&P 500. Over the past 20 years, the S&P 500 has bottomed out for the year on March 13th. Let's circle that date and see if it plays out this year or if we have another leg down ahead. And that brings us right to our big three for the week. Number one, just because the major market indexes may be stuck in a trading range, that doesn't mean some sectors and stocks aren't busting a move right now. Look inside the murky markets and you're going to find new 52-week highs in sectors like steel, casinos, building materials, travel, auto manufacturers, industrial machinery, solar stocks, and more. In fact, according to the good people at barcharts.com, there are 171 stocks on U.S. indexes hitting 52-week highs right now. I'm looking at you, Hyatt, MGM, Las Vegas Sands, United Airlines, United Rentals, Mastech, WW Granger, G. That's right, General Electric bringing good things to life again. Olympic Steel and Ferrari, just in time for the start of F1 season. And it's lights out! There's a bull market happening somewhere, so make sure you're looking inside sectors for signs of strength. Throw some of those sectors or stocks making new highs on your watch list and see if those trends continue. You're going to want to follow the leaders out of this consolidation. Number two, know your bears. The NASDAQ is the only major US market still in a bear market, down 20% from its highs from last year, but it's clawing its way out. But it's useful also to look at the behavior of the S&P 500 coming out of previous bear markets and what was happening with earnings, credit spreads, and monetary policy at that time to see which era resembles the current one 
the most. Thankfully, Jurian Timurat Fidelity does this on the regular, and this is his latest take. During the 2008 bear market and the great financial crisis, financial conditions tightened much more than we experienced in this cycle. Credit spreads were blown out, earnings collapsed, and the PE multiples fell with them. That was a liquidity crisis, and you could feel it all over the economy and the markets. That's not what's happening now. And back then, the government bailed out the banks and the Fed floored interest rates to jumpstart the economy and the stock market. It worked. The internet bubble bursting bear market of 2001-2002, that produced falling earnings and two years of tightening financial conditions. The S&P 500 fell 37% and the price to earnings multiples were slashed to ribbons. If you look at what happened last year, the S&P 500 fell 24% and the PE multiple was cut in half from 30 times earnings to 15 times earnings. This was happening as the Fed was raising interest rates and inflation hit a 40-year high. But that washout happened early in the Fed's hiking cycle and may be complete as we approach the Fed's terminal rate. Earnings are still growing, albeit slowly. In 1946, the market fell 28%, yet financial conditions eased as real interest rates plummeted after a 20% spike in inflation. Coming out of World War II, investors assumed spending would slow, but it didn't, and prices spiked. The Federal Reserve tightened monetary policy to bring inflation down, just like they've been doing over the past year and at a similar point in the cycle. The stock market fell close to 27%, but recovered much of those losses until 1948, as those higher interest rates finally manifested themselves in a massive economic slowdown that contributed to another bear market from June of that year till June of 1949. That kind of feels a little similar to today. And then there's 1973. Inflation was at 8.7% and heading higher. Geopolitical risk was everywhere and the country was bitterly divided over Vietnam and civil rights. In fact, that whole stretch from 1968 to 1973 was brutal for investors as the market was down more than 36%. The U.S. Federal Reserve, led by Arthur Burns at that time, waged an all-out war on inflation and raised the federal funds rate to more than 12%. 12% folks, we're only at around 5% right now. Inflation came down, but so did the economy, and the U.S. languished in a period of stagflation into the early 1980s. So what era is the current one most similar to? In terms of inflation and the Fed's response to it, kind of feels like 1974 with a little bit of 1946 sprinkled into it. But the main difference between then and now is that the Fed has already tightened monetary policy and investors seem to have already absorbed those shockwaves. Money moves a lot faster these days and data is much more available, which is why these economic cycles and market moves seem to be happening a lot quicker these days. And number three, How about some shipping news? We like to look at transport and cargo prices and volume around here, if you hadn't noticed. And if you hadn't noticed, they are kind of normalizing after a wild three years. Just look at global container freight rates, those boxes on those ships crisscrossing the ocean. In March of 2020, a 40-foot container cost $1,344 to rent. As the pandemic froze the supply chain, those prices doubled by December of that year. But then demand came soaring back and the supply chain could not handle it. Prices jumped as high as $11,000 per container by September of 2021 and stayed above 7000 for the first half of last year. Today, they are all the way back down to about $1,800 per container, a fall of 84% from their peak. That is a good sign of normalization and a good sign of inflation cooling way down. Know your cargo. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's a big one for the labor market and the future path of monetary policy. The February non-farm payrolls report comes out on Friday, and if we see another continuation of robust hiring like we did in January, the Fed is going to keep the pedal to the metal. Economists are looking for around 215,000 jobs to have been added last month. That's a steep drop from the 517,000 job gains in January. The question is, will January's numbers be revised lower, or were they an accurate representation of the continued strength in the labor market? If they were, and if 
February's numbers come in hot, expectations for more and bigger rate hikes will dominate the narrative. We'll get a hint of February's payrolls report with the release of the ADP National Employment Report, which tracks hiring in the private sector and the Job Openings and Turnover Labor Survey. The JOLTS report both come out on Wednesday. At last reading for December, the JOLTS report showed 11 million job openings in the United States. Fed Chair Jerome Powell will speak before the U.S. Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday and the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday as part of the Fed Chair's semi-annual testimony to Congress on monetary policy. With hotter-than-expected inflation figures coming in for January, Fed officials and Jerome Powell are going to be on the hot seat taking questions from Congress. Traders are now projecting up to four additional rate hikes of 25 basis points this year, resulting in a terminal Fed funds rate between 5.5% and 5.75% by September, according to the CME's Fed Funds Tracker, and prospects for a 50 basis point hike later this month went from 0% to now 30%, according to the CME's Fed Watch tool. On Thursday, President Biden will outline his budget proposal for the upcoming fiscal year to Congress. The new budget may contain higher taxes on billionaires and upper-income households, but will not feature any tax increases for households making less than $400,000 a year. Don't expect Congress to pass any tax hikes this year or next, but don't rule out more money going to defense spending. With the war in Ukraine raging on and the U.S. and China posturing on the sidelines, the appetite for military spending is pretty healthy right now. Biden's budget proposal will come amid an impasse on the debt ceiling, and the federal government could run out of money to pay its bills as early as this summer if an agreement isn't reached. Meanwhile, earnings reports slow down quite a bit this week, although we're going to hear from widely held and widely followed companies, including Campbell Soup, Oracle, and DocuSign, among others. Apple's going to host its annual meeting virtually on March 10th, and GE and Mattel will also host shareholder meetings this week. But all eyes will be on the labor market all week long, and another hot jobs report is only going to add fuel to the Fed's inflation-fighting fire. Whoever said nice guys finish last never met Phil Perlman. He's one of the shining lights of the financial and wellness industries who has built his career on building bridges, uplifting others, growing communities, and helping us get the very best out of ourselves. His career has taken him through the multiple stock market manias as a trader, a blogger, a platform builder, and a community builder at places like Yahoo Finance, StockTwits, the Bank of the Ozarks, Osprey Funds, and finally to his own platform, Pearl Institute, which he has just launched. Thankfully for me, his wild journey also brought him across my path, and I'm happy to say that we've been friends since even before we met in person. And now he's our special guest this week on The Express. Welcome aboard, my friend. Caleb, great to be here. How are you, man? So good. So good to be sitting across the table from you. We're doing this in person. I want to get into your career path, Phil, but let's start from the top and work our way backwards. What's the Pearl Institute? What made you want to found it? What's the mission? So there's a parallel between wealth planning and health planning. And we're all whole people. You can't separate us. And so I wanted to create something. I've been on my own health journey for a number of years now. I got myself really healthy. I was in very poor health for a long time. And I know that you can save all the money in the world, 401k, 529, endure the stress of years like 2022, and reach your freedom phase. Reach that time in your life where you have the money to enjoy. And if you don't have your health left at that time, you ain't got nothing. You got nothing left. You can't take a mulligan on your body, the only body you'll ever have. So I wanted to create something that fit perfectly with people who are planning for their financial futures that maybe have neglected their own health and their own future health. 
And so that's where I came up with the idea of personal health planning to dovetail with personal wealth planning. And that's really the spirit of the Pearl Institute. I also want to educate. I have individual clients and we're going to be launching some more scaled online services as well and possibly some organization-based services as well, B2B type of thing. Right. How many people do you and I know our age, a little bit older, they get to that place finally, and then their health falls apart. The wheels come off, and then the money that they either earn, saved, accumulated over a lifetime goes into that, or they simply can enjoy it. So we know life is precious. We've lost too many people close to us. So love the mission and love where you're coming from. And the path that you took to get here is so interesting. I just ticked off a couple of things. I know I missed a lot on the way. You're a child psychologist. You've got a very, very diverse background. Give us sort of that quick path that brought you to this place. Well, I'm ADHD. I mean, if I'm not, I could be. And so I've bounced around a lot. And it seems to me like each thing I've moved from to has contributed to me winding up in this place right now. And so I started my career as a teacher. And then I went and earned a doctorate in clinical psychology. And then I got involved with behavioral economics and a hedge fund and helped launch a fund and was there. Then made some investments in social media in the early days and helped to launch StockTwits, which is a huge financial yeah, community. Yeah, we're big fans and, and Howard's been a guest on the program and also a good friend for many years. So we love StockTwits. Right, an investor there as well. And then went to Yahoo Finance when Yahoo bought Tumblr and began to develop that network there and was recruited by a bank to run their marketing and bring them into the digital age. And from there, uh, I was a CMO at a crypto firm, Osprey Funds. And during that time, I went on my own health journey. I was out of shape. I was probably about 50 pounds heavier, drinking too much, not taking care of myself. And I saw where that was going, had made a number of attempts to get myself healthy, sort of a three steps forward, two steps back, four steps forward, eight steps back. You know how that goes. I know how it goes. cycle. And came out of that and kept trying and kept trying, fall down seven, get up eight. And finally it stuck. And I started to learn some things about myself and about health. And at the same time, I looked around and I saw that the obesity rate in our country is increasing. 70% of our adult country is overweight. Well over 40% is obese. And diabetes is increasing. Heart disease is increasing. So something's off there. And so as I was getting myself more and more healthy, I thought to myself, I could really launch something myself. Thank goodness I'm in a position where I can do that. And I could launch something myself that really combines this passion I have for helping people, that psychology degree that I never really pursued, and this obsession that I have with health. And so I combine those two things. And that's really the path leading me to where I am today. Let's talk about life lessons, but also lessons you may have learned through the journey through money that have helped you in life as well. What were some of the most important ones? Well, the parallels between wealth and health are incredible to me. And so I find over and over again, 
concepts from one go to the other and concepts of the other go to one. And so one in particular, there's a million of them, but one in particular that is so striking to me that I've been thinking a lot about is how we think about our future. How do we think about our future? And how do we think about that person that is us in the future, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? And we make a lot of the same mistakes that we make with one or with other. Maybe we're not saving enough. Maybe we're not eating well. And both of those things have to do with that future self, that person who's out there 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now, that is going to happen one day. That future will happen. Just as we're sitting here right now, that future day will come too. I mean, you know, we could get hit by a bus tomorrow or whatever, but chances are 85%, 90% chance that we're going to be here in 10, 15 years. That's really the big lesson that I've learned from my life, that it took me a long, I must have banged my head against the wall a thousand times, really not thinking about that future self, both from a health point of view, maybe lesser from a money point of view. I mean, there was a time, I've reached a point now, I think, where I'm the most boring investor in the world. And I love it that way. And I used to be very active. I was a hedge fund trader. I traded in and out of positions. I traded options, the whole thing. And I just reached a point where I just didn't want to have that preoccupation anymore. I didn't want to have that stress anymore. And I really gravitated more and more towards a world where there's about five low-cost ETFs that are broad market. Some of them are international. I'm not going to say any specific tickers here, but you know where I'm going. Broad market ETFs that really spread it around, that are low-cost, and you can do really good over a long period of time by just consistently putting money into those types of vehicles and that's where I am right now. I don't think about it that much. I have a regular schedule. Some of it is automated. And it's almost the exact same thing with my health, where I have, these are the things that I do. I do them over and over again. They make me feel great. These are the things that I eat. I don't have an exotic diet, a lot of high protein foods. I eat them over and over again. And so the parallel, like I was saying, that parallel is a profound one to me. It's why I'm doing what I'm doing, but it's also why I'm living how I'm living. Yeah, I understand what you mean completely. And I think this may be something about people our age or just the benefit of wisdom, but also the, making those mistakes. And when you talk about thinking about yourself in the future, 10, 15, 20 years out, I remember something Joe McLean, great financial advisor who's been on this program, has said to us, it's the how much does it cost to be you? How much does it cost to be the you you want to be? What does the you you want to be look like, live like, act like, feel like, and then start to build your plan around that? So it's so important. And as you get older, I think also about the metaphor of the eagle, probably know this, eagles live a long time. But at some point, and usually it's in their 30s or 40s, the eagles go off on their own, bang their head against the rock till the beak comes off so they can pluck out the old feathers, pluck themselves clean, and then fly off and start anew. So the rebirth and the sort of the transformation of yourself 
is so important and being able to reinvent yourself, so important. Just think about your career path. I started in the restaurant industry. Here I am as the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. Rebirth is a universal theme that we see in every culture, in every religion, in every mythology that has ever existed on earth. It's universal. And I love that theme. And that is something that drives me in my 50s, that we can reinvent ourselves. Revolutions are infinite. We can reinvent ourselves over and over again and refine and make ourselves better, even if it's in some small way. We talked a lot about your career path. We talked a lot about choices we made or you made, thinking about the choices that I made that got me to this place. But if you were talking to your 25-year-old self now, looking at the industry that you and I kind of grew up in professionally, is there a path you might take today knowing what you know now? You know, I would have done things very different. And so I lost a part of myself in my teens. There was a part of myself that loved fitness, that loved movement, that loved running, all of that stuff. And I got away from it. I was an athlete in high school. I got away from it. And I didn't take care of myself. I drank too much. I got very far away. And I know this is a very common path. Talking with friends and talking with clients, I see this very often. There's people, hey, I was a swimmer in high school. Hey, I was on the cross-country team. And I got far away from that. So, And I got far away from that. And if I was talking to my 25-year-old self, I would say tune back into that and trust that because that's a part of who you really were, who you really are. You know, in Eastern philosophy, they have all of these concepts that aren't simple linear one plus one equals two types of concepts. So what is the idea of enlightenment? Us as Americans, it's very hard for us to understand this. What is enlightenment? Because it's not one plus one equals two. It doesn't all add up. And so I was reading this book. I think it was called Buddhism for Beginners. Like it dumbed it down for Americans. And the author said something like, enlightenment is just rediscovering. And that hit me. Boom, like a ton of bricks. Enlightenment is just rediscovering because it was at a time where I was getting back into this exercise and fitness and that feeling of running that I love so much. And I was like, wow, I'm just rediscovering a part of myself that I lost when I was 16, went to college, started not taking care of myself, stopped exercising as much. And so I think if I went back to my 25-year-old self, I would have said, hey, keep pursuing that. That's who you really are. And I think the rest would have just fallen into place. Sounds like you've had a lot of really interesting mentors and influences in your life. Who's been the most important professional influence for you throughout the course of your career? Wow, that's such a great question. There was a psychologist, Carl Rogers, and he was a humanist. He was the humanist. And he taught that everybody's on this journey. It's not just me going through this journey and having to rediscover myself. And it's not just me having difficulties with my health or whatever. All of us are on a journey and all of us are having difficulties and all of us make mistakes and all of us lose ourselves and all of us suffer. And that opens the door, that realization, that recognition opens the door to empathy. 
Well, Phil, you know Investopedia is a site that was built on our financial and investing terms, but I know you have a fabulous vocabulary that spans finance, investing, and now health and psychology. Do you have a favorite investing or money term that just speaks to your heart that you would like to share with the listeners? Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you open it up a crazy can of worms there. But I think that I'm going to go to behavioral economics. And there's this one called hyperbolic discounting, temporal discounting or hyperbolic discounting. And that's this idea that the further out we go into the future, the less we value things. So if we're sitting here right now and there is a dollar in front of us, or there is a piece of carrot cake in front of us, we're never going to value that thing in front of us now more than now. That is peak value for us. We take that dollar and we put that dollar out 20 years from now or 10 years from now, and we're going to value it less. It's going to be discounted. Maybe it's going to be worth 60 cents. Maybe it's going to be worth 40 cents. And I'm not taking into account interest rates. I'm saying all things being equal, controlling for interest rates. We devalue things into the future. And the reason that this concept is important to me is not just from an economics point of view, not just from the dollar in the future, but also our health into the future. This is a perfect parallel between health and wealth. We do the exact same thing with our health in the future. So we say, hey, I'm going to eat that piece of cake now because I don't care about my health 10 years from now. I don't really care about it. I've devalued that thing. And so that's a mistake. We are all present biased and we all discount the future. We do it with money and we do it with our health. And how do we escape that? How do we transcend that? Well, there's many ways to, sometimes we fail, but one way, and you alluded to this before, is we visualize that future. You were talking about, I think, somebody that you admire, I forgot yeah, the name. Joe McLean. Joe McLean. We visualize that future self. And the more vividly we do it, and the more accurately, hey, this is what my dream is. And it's not just, I'd love to have this beach house or whatever, but it's, how do I feel? And what does my family look like? And when I look in the mirror, how do I look? We vividly imagine that future self and we connect with it emotionally. We can offset some of this future discounting that we tend to do as a human being. Wow, that is an awesome term. I don't even know if we have it on Investopedia, but I will make sure that we do and that your name is on it. Was that hyperbolic? Boom, I'll write it. I'll write it for What's you What's the guys. term again? Hyperbolic? Hyperbolic discounting, temporal discounting. I'll write that up for you guys. I'll be happy to and honored to. Awesome. That is so good. Phil Perlman from the Pearl Institute, but also Woo! humanist friend and delighted to have you as a, my own friend and as a friend of Investopedia. Thanks so much for climbing aboard the Express. We Caleb, appreciate you. you're the man. I love you, man. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Rushena Wiederholt, who sent us an email suggesting goodwill for this week's term. And we like that term because it shows up in mergers and acquisitions news all the time. According to my favorite website, goodwill is an intangible asset that is associated with the purchase of one company by another. It represents value that can give the acquiring company a competitive advantage. Specifically, a goodwill definition is the portion of the purchase price that 
is higher than the sum of the net fair value of all the assets purchased in the acquisition and the liabilities assumed in the process. The value of a company's name, brand reputation, loyal customer base, solid customer service, good employee relations, and proprietary technology represent aspects of goodwill. This value is why one company may pay a premium for another. But we also sometimes see what is known as goodwill impairment. Impairment of an asset occurs when the market value of the asset drops below historical cost. This can occur as the result of an adverse event such as declining cash flows, increased competitive environment, or an economic depression, among many other reasons. If a company assesses that the acquired net assets fall below the book value, or if the amount of goodwill was overstated, then the company must impair or do a write-down on the value of the asset on the balance sheet. Good suggestion, Roshana. A pair of Investopedia's finest socks are coming your way just in time for spring. Hey friends, Investopedia just released our latest roundup of the best online brokers for 2023 for investors of all levels and all the major asset classes. We're going to link to the rankings in the show notes, but here are the category winners. Best overall, Fidelity Investments. Best broker for ETFs, Fidelity Investments. Best broker for low cost, also Fidelity. Best broker for beginners, TD Ameritrade. Best broker for mobile, also TD Ameritrade, best broker for advanced traders, Interactive Brokers, and the best broker for international trading, also going to Interactive Brokers. And for those options traders out there, the best broker for options, Tasty Trade. Check out the rankings and find the right broker for you. We'll go out this week honoring International Women's Day, which happens on Wednesday, although it's really every day in my house. This week, we'll hear pearls of wisdom from Oprah Winfrey, one of the most successful business people of the past 25 years, an entrepreneur, a visionary, a philanthropist, and a motivator. Here's Oprah speaking at the Harvard University commencement to the class of 2013. Learn from every mistake, because every experience, encounter, and particularly your mistakes, are there to teach you and force you into being more of who you are. And then figure out what is the next right move. And the key to life is to develop an internal, moral, emotional GPS that can tell you which way to go. Wise words indeed. Develop that moral and emotional GPS and keep heading towards your North Star. Thanks for joining us this week as always, and special thanks to Phil Perlman for climbing aboard the Express. That balance of health and wealth is so, so important, and no one is more passionate about it than Phil. To your health, salute, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.